Good morning. It's my privilege to reflect with you for a few moments in this season of the resurrection, and I do so in the name of the risen Christ. Hallelujah. It's almost two weeks since Easter, and we still have four blooms on our Easter lily that fill the house in the evenings with that lovely fragrance. All the leftovers of the turkey dinner are well consumed by now, but I still have the fond memory, a lingering memory of great conversations on Easter Day with family members where we wished each other a joyous Easter, even though distance is our reality. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. You know, before we sail away from this experience of Holy Week and this particular time that's at the center of the Christian year, I'd like to just share with you that one of the amazing things about the Gospels is that 50 to 60 percent of everything that's written about Jesus in the Gospels is concentrated on providing the details of that one particular final week beginning with the moment of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the waving of palms to Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and the day of resurrection. I mean, when you read the Gospel of John, for example, you only get halfway through the Gospel of John, and it's Palm Sunday, which means that then there was precious little other space, whether they're writing on vellum at that time or writing on papyrus or whatever, to be able to include the events of three years of Jesus' ministry that they were witness to and remembered. So in other words, selections had to be made. It wasn't all going to fit. And that's the bane of any writer, that there's the editing and the editing as selections are made. And you know, this is one of the questions that's always kind of fascinated me whenever I come to a text in our sacred writings, is to wonder, why is this particular account this description, why did it float to the surface and, in a sense, survive among all the other material that would have existed? Such, for example, on the day of resurrection, so many of them had their own account, their own experience, and their own way of expressing what they had experienced and seen and heard and how they told those stories into the future and people recorded them, wrote them down, and, and then those stories circulated and uh, teaching materials uh, formed. What was it about the particular telling that we have in the Gospels that over time made it part of the corpus of favorites? And, you know, there were other accounts, sure, and other details, but they fell away or they were lost. Maybe they only went to a couple of communities. While there were these accounts, which became so valued, perhaps right from the beginning, and spread and were read and cherished. And, of course, that's what we have in the Gospels, is the later editorial synthesis that drew together all of those favorites into a particular account of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah. And, you know, we have different accounts, four of them. They came from different parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. We know, for example, that Mark's account gospel came out of the community that formed in Alexandria on the Nile Delta. We know that Matthew's account came from the great city of Antioch in present-day Lebanon, or actually just in Turkey as it is, at the very northern part of the eastern end of the Mediterranean, where the church flourished and was first known as a Christian community 
First, they were known as the Way. In fact, that was the community that bankrolled Paul's missionary journeys, so a great center where Matthew's gospel came, which is why it helps us understand when we come to read the text side by side, we notice there are sometimes variations, differences. And it doesn't mean that they're contradictions. It's just that others had other material that they were telling as those accounts were drawn together. And that doesn't create any doubt on the material or any question around the activity of the Holy Spirit, but it just points to a fascinating, very human process in which the Jesus events, which were known and beloved and told and retold, that some became cherished by the early community, presumably because they spoke so profoundly to them where they were. So when we come to a text like today's gospel, I bring that question and I say, why might the early community have found this particular reading, this text, this version, so helpful to them? How did it help them proclaim the gospel of Jesus? Or what did it answer for them in their lives? So with that background, let's look at the text that we have today in Luke's gospel. It's the day of resurrection. We're in the upper room, which is part of a residential area with tightly packed sort of stone houses and narrow core walkways in the lower part of Jerusalem. The upper room, we're told, is a secluded place, a secret place where they went. It's where they went on a Thursday night and clambered up creaking wooden stairs to an upper space for privacy to have that meal as it became known as the Last Supper where Jesus, under candlelight, stood up, knelt down, and one by one washed their feet and commissioned them to love one another in the same way. It's the same place where he took the cup and took the bread and said, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in memory of me. We know that it's where they hid out after his arrest for fear of their own lives. It's the place that they return to, to hide for those next few days. The place where the news of Jesus' crucifixion would have first been received. Where the news of Mary bursting through the door on Easter morning announced, Jesus risen, I have seen the Lord. It was the place where those who left early in the morning, just kind of overcome by the confusion of it all, left the city heading down the coastal road and then raced back in the evening to announce that they had seen Jesus on the road to the Emmaus in the breaking of bread. There are so many events that occur in the upper room. It's believed that the upper room, in fact, was the place that was most hallowed by that early group of Christian followers of Jesus. Not the place of Jesus' crucifixion, nor the empty tomb, which later would become a center of pilgrimage as pilgrims would come from around the world and the ancient world to see the place where Jesus was crucified and where he rose from the dead. But at the beginning, it was the upper room because of so many experiences of Jesus that had occurred there. So we're in the upper room, and up until now, at this moment, in the text, they have experienced the women who went to the tomb early in the morning, and Luke records it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women who announced that they had experienced angels telling them of Jesus being risen. We hear that Peter goes to the tomb and verifies, in fact, that the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled back. 
but him he did not see. And then as we come to the text, it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them, stood. And he said to them, peace be with you. Can you think of why such words might have been so meaningful for them? I mean, they've been traumatized by all that they'd experienced, the sort of rapid succession of Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, uh, so quickly, and, and Jesus' first words to them, compassionate and loving and kind, are peace, peace be with you. Would those same words then, as they retold those story, that story in years to come, would those same words speak to them in their experience as a young Christian community scattered across an empire or speak to us even now, 21 centuries later, as we are living through this global plague, the first plague of the third millennium, Jesus' words of grace coming to us and saying, the first words of the resurrection, peace, peace be with you. They speak for all time. And then we're told they were startled and they thought they were seeing a ghost. That's the question of all time. Well, what were they seeing? Was it a ghost? Was it an apparition? I mean, all the questions flood in of all ages. What actually was happening? What's the real story here? Were they just traumatized and their imaginations were at work? And what does Jesus say to them as we read on? Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? In other words, Jesus right away is answering the question that will stand for all time. All the questions, all the doubts, the uncertainties, the theories, the explanations that will be presented, trying to get through what is always going to be nested in majesty and mystery. He says, look at my hands and my feet. Why is hands and feet? Because they bear the marks of the nails. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, he instructs them. And he showed them his hands and his feet, and he asked, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. So the early church answers the question, was it real, with this text. Jesus says, touch me and see me. Well, Christians for all time would wish that we might see in, in, in person and, and know and touch and have any questions or hesitations dissolved, like the woman who reached out in the crowd just to touch even the hem of Jesus' garment and leapt across the chasm of faith. Last Sunday's text focused on the disciple Thomas, who was out when all this happened and upon returning and hearing their excited account said, I can't believe unless I actually touch him. Well, for all time, we might say that. There can always be that wish to, to touch and to be touched by God. And indeed, soulfully, there are moments in life we, when we can feel that, and it's a gift. Thomas Aquinas, the great spiritual writer of Western Christianity in the 13th century, said that of all the senses given to humanity, touch was the highest of all the senses in a spiritual, soulful point of view, far greater than sight or hearing, he said, 
because it's by touch that we know that we are not alone, that we are human, that we are made for relationship, to embrace, made to touch one another. You know, when the space shuttle Challenger years ago exploded on its ascent into space and exploded in a fireball on the edge of space, the official transcript that was published by NASA says that the last words from the spaceship Challenger was, uh-oh. But the unofficial transcript, which you can see on a, in a display at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, which emerged later because it revealed that some of the astronauts had survived the initial blast and knew what was happening. The unofficial communication says that the last words spoken from the challenger were, give me your hand, give me your hand. Jesus says, look at my hands, look at my feet, touch me and see. Like you, I stand where faith opens the way to knowing, opens the way to prayer, opens the way to encounter. But by using the word faith, one is not claiming a kind of, I believe, a kind of cold believing, a kind of defiant, this is just the way I think. But because there are actually two words in Latin that we translate believe. There is the word epistuo in Latin, which means Believe, I believe because I understand it. It's empirical, it's defensible. That's epistuo. But the other word for believe in Latin is credo, from which comes our word creed, which means I give my heart to this. Even if I don't understand it at all, in all its ways, I give my heart to this. Part of me wishes that there was some way that we could rewrite the opening to the creedal statement that we have so that it doesn't begin as it does now. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, which can sound like a kind of regimental assertion. Instead, we would say, as credo actually means, I give my heart to God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I give my heart to Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. I give my heart to the Holy Spirit. That's what it actually means. It's an act of will and of love, of daring affection, that even if something might still seem unclear to all the cognitive answers we might wish to our questions, I still give my heart to this. This is where I stand, my whole being. And when I do, there are times and there's moments. I mean, there are moments when I know and really know that he is here, risen and alive, and his word is, peace be with you. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah.